Good. Well, um, for those like Dea who don't know who I am, uh, my name's Duncan. It's lovely to see you all. I've known Dea for several years now, so um, that was a brilliant moment. It made me laugh. Um, we've just, we're just turning up the heat a little bit in here because it's quite cold. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me pray for us as we come to... Sorry about that. Let me pray for us as we come to read from God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us in the Bible, in Scripture. And Lord, I pray, as we start a new series this morning in the book of Isaiah, I ask that you would speak to us in power, Lord God. I pray your, your spirit would move in an amazing way this morning. Lord, I, I ask for conviction of sin. Lord, I pray your spirit would convict us of sin in our lives this morning. Would reveal areas where we're not honouring you not living up to your righteous standards. Uh, but Lord, I also pray for the spirit of forgiveness to come, the, the, the knowledge of your wonderful mercy and forgiveness. May, may you just move in the room this morning and do that in our hearts and minds for your glory, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I, I mentioned in my prayer, we're starting a new series this morning in the book of Isaiah. And if you know anything about Isaiah, Isaiah is a giant of a prophet. He's the first major prophet in the Old Testament. He, he writes a book that's 66 chapters long. Don't worry, we're not going to do all 66 chapters in one series. Uh, we're going to break it up a little bit. But he is a prophecy giant. In fact, he prophesied over 54 years. When I read the first verse of Isaiah, you'll see that he prophesied during the reigns of four different kings. So this was a guy who, who lived a long time, who prophesied for many, many years, and um, who outlived three kings. Who He was kind of a court prophet to these kings in, this, in the nation of Judah. It's also a book that Christians love to quote. The book of Isaiah. I don't know, if you've been around church any length of time, you will have heard people quoting from the book of Isaiah. At Christmas time, we quote from Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. At Christmas, we also quote from Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. When we talk about Jesus upon the cross, we quote from Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Or when we talk about the life of Jesus and his ministry, we quote from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Or, or when we're feeling tired, we quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Even you shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. The chances are, if you've been in and around church for any length of time, you will have heard the book of Isaiah quoted many, many times. And those quotes are amazing. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And in this book, we have prophecies about the life of Jesus Christ. And the book of Isaiah is one of the reasons I'm a Christian, because I read it and go, this can only happen by the power of God. There's there's actually a, a Persian king, King Cyrus, named in the book of Isaiah. And because he's named, academic mon modern scholars um, want to criticise the book of Isaiah and say it can't possibly all be written by one guy at this time because he names King Cyrus and King Cyrus comes hundreds of years after the time when Isaiah was supposedly written. Um, 
And so academic scholars say, no, this must have been written by two different people or three different people. We've got to break up this book. Um, but actually, their argument has a massive flaw in that there is no manuscriptual evidence that the book of Isaiah was, was, net, was split into two. It's always been, in Jewish manuscripts, one book. And so the logical conclusion is Isaiah genuinely prophesied the name of the Persian emperor who would come after him, which I think is amazing. Over 100 years before this, this Persian emperor reigned, Isaiah was using his name in his prophecies about what would happen to the Israelite nation. So it's, this, this book is fabulous, and the quotes, the way we quote from it, is amazing. But let me tell you the truth. Those quotes are like cherries on a cake. I think of the book of Isaiah this morning a bit like a chocolate gatto. And we love the quotes, and we pick up the quotes, and we enjoy the little quotes, but there's whole chocolatey, delicious, spiritual goodness in the book of Isaiah. And I hope as we go through this sermon series, we're going to enjoy some of the parts of Isaiah that you're probably not familiar with, and, and just taste and see the goodness of this book. It's one of my favourite books of the Bible. I'm really excited for starting off this sermon series. So let's, let's get started. I'm going to read, from you, uh, read to you from Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to read Isaiah 1, uh, verses 1 to 18. Isaiah 1, 1 to 18. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared, up, reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour the land. It is des desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I wonder how many of you have seen the film Shawshank Redemption. It is uh, one of my favourite films, definitely in my top ten. Um, this is what Mark Kermode, do you know Mark Kermode? He's on Radio 5 Live, he does film reviews. Um, I kind of quite like him. He's kind of quite critical and cutting. I enjoy his reviews. Anyway, this is what Mark Kermode says about that film. There's a whole lot of Shawshank before the redemption. Shawshank is the name of the prison in which um, the main characters are, are trapped within the prison. And, and Mark Kermode says there's a whole load of Shawshank before there's redemption. In other words, most of the film is set within prison and is all about the kind of misery and difficulty and trials of prison life before there's an amazing ending. Apologies if I spoilt it for you, but it's been out for many years, so um, your own fault. Um, the text of Isaiah 1 is just like Shawshank Redemption. There's a whole load of sin and judgment before a moment of hope and mercy and forgiveness. And so that's the way I'm going to preach this morning. I'm going to preach 16 verses of sin and judgment. And then finally, right at the end, I will preach one verse of hope and mercy. And so the, the reason I tell you that is um, hold on to hope this morning. Don't give up. If you're going, wow, this is a miserable sermon, then um, just, just know there's hope coming at the end. People who are going to leave early, like Yvonne mentioned to me, she's going to do. She's going to miss out on the hope. She's just going to have the, the misery and the sadness. Yeah, I'm sorry for saying that, Yvonne. I apologise. Um, there is hope. There is hope coming, I promise. Okay, so let's get started. I'm not preaching points this morning. I'm just going to walk us through the verses in Isaiah chapter 1. And so what we have in this chapter is something like a courtroom scene. This, Isaiah 1 is set in the courtroom. And Isaiah begins in verse 2 by saying this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. At the beginning of this courtroom scene, imagine this room is a courtroom, Isaiah invites all of heaven and all of earth into the courtroom to see this case that is going to unfold before all of heaven and all the earth, the case of the sin of Judah. All of heaven and all of earth are invited to, to see this court case. Even us in Fairham in 2019, we're part of all the earth. We're invited in to this courtroom case to hear the case of the sin of Judah. And one of the reasons we're invited into this courtroom is that if we listen well, and if we listen honestly to the case of the sin of the nation of Judah, if, we, if we're really honest with ourselves, as we hear about the sin of Judah, we would realise we are guilty of the same 
sins of the same things as this nation of Judah. In one sense, earth is invited in as a judge in this courtroom scene. Uh, the Gentile nations were appointed by God to judge Israel. Israel were the people of God, they rebelled against God, and so God appointed Gentile, unreligious nations to come and bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. If you know the history, that's what happens. But in another sense, we're invited to look and see ourselves in the people of Judah. And that's how I want us to listen this morning. I want us to listen with humble hearts and to be honest with ourselves. And as we read about and study the sin of Judah, to think, actually, I'm not very different from the people of Judah. Actually, I'm also sinful. I'm guilty of the same sins. So, the first witness stands up. In fact, the only witness stands up in this courtroom scene. And the first and only witness is God himself. It says, doesn't it, in verse 2, for the Lord has spoken. So the Lord stands up to witness against the nation of Judah. And the Lord's testimony in this courtroom case consists of a series of images and metaphors as God describes the sin of Judah in these images and in some ways God is rude and quite insulting towards the people of Judah. He is very explicit and very bold to describe the sin of his people. So this God, the witness in this courtroom scene, stands up and he begins in verse 2 like this. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God does not speak as a cold-hearted judge in Isaiah 1, but as a loving father. He has brought up the nation of Israel. He chose Abraham to be the father of the Jews. He rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He guided Joshua and Israel into a successful military campaign and into the promised land, a land metaphorically described as flowing with milk and honey. God, lovingly as a father, raised up judges to judge the land and to rule over them. He raised up prophets to speak truth to the people of Israel. He selected King David, raised up King David, and turned Israel, this He turned one man, Abraham, into an amazing, rich and prosperous nation. He chose something which was small in this world and he raised them up, reared them and brought them up into this powerful nation under King David. God truly acted as a loving father towards the nation of Israel. But they have been rebellious children, he says in verse 2. They've ignored him. They've disobeyed him. They've, some of them have denied him completely. Some of them have forgotten all the mighty deeds that God had, had done for them. Some of them have chosen to worship idols. They've, they've gone to foreign nations and, and accepted their false wooden idols and worshipped them. This is the sin of Judah. They have rebelled against a loving, caring father. That's the same sin that we have also committed, brothers and sisters. God has reared us and brought us up. He is our Father in heaven. He knit us together in our mother's womb. 
He knows how many hairs are on your head. He's given us life. He's given us breath. He's given us food. He gives us our beds at night. He has guided us through life from conception all the way to this moment now when we're sat in this room. His love has been steadfast towards us at all times. God is a loving father. He is the loving father of all humanity and he is the loving father of you. God is your loving, caring father. He has done no wrong to you ever. You know, on earth we have imperfect fathers who make mistakes and do things wrong, and some are better than others. And so some of us have good dads and some of us have not so great dads. But all of us have a perfect father in heaven. God has never done anything wrong to you. I'm not saying he hasn't let you go through trials and difficulties. A good father doesn't wrap their child up in cotton wool and never let them go outside. No, a good father... Um, knows his children will go through trials and difficulties and he prepares them and teaches them and speaks to them and comforts them through those trials and difficulties. And that's exactly how God our Father in heaven has treated us. He has treated us good and right in every single way. And yet all of us in this room have been rebellious children. All of us for at least a portion of our life, have failed to even recognise that our Father in Heaven existed. We have disobeyed his instructions. Some of us are like children who know best. We read God's instruction in Scripture and we say, no, I'm not sure I agree with that one, God. I'm not going to live that one out. Or we say, oh, not today. I'm going to ignore that one today. We're like the, the child who goes, no, no, Father, you don't know what you're talking about. I know better than you. Some of you parents maybe know that conversation. I don't know. Some of us are like neglectful children. We take our Father in heaven for granted. We never speak with him or spend time with him or celebrate with him. But all of us, in our own ways, are rebellious children towards God our Father. As he's treated us well and lovingly and full of kindness, we have not treated him in the same way. And so just like Judah, all of us, our children who have rebelled against our Father in heaven. God keeps going in his testimony, in his witness against the nation of Judah, in verse 3 by saying this, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. In other words, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, know less than donkeys and oxes. Imagine an ox, if you will, um, that a father uses to plough a field. And the farmer comes to plough the field and he connects up all the, the, the I can't remember, the, the goad that guides the ox and he says, we're going to plough a field. And, and the owner guides the ox left and the ox kind of ignores him and goes right. And then he, oh, trying to plough my field. And he guides the ox right and the ox goes left. This is an ox that does not know its owner, does not obey its owner's commandment, commandments, the farmer would be furious. He'd be like, stupid ox, I paid a lot of money for you. I bought him off that other farmer and you're an idiot. You do not know your own master. You are a stupid, stupid cow. That's how we're like with our father sometimes. God says go right. God says go left. God says do this, do that, don't do that. And we ignore him. We're like an ox 
who does not know its master. Or imagine a farmer buys a donkey, and he puts the donkey in a field, and every day the farmer goes out with bags full of carrots and, I don't know, parsnips? What do donkeys eat? I'm not sure. He takes out all these amazing food, and he puts out the carrots and the parsnips and all the other food in, in the donkey's crib. In, that's what, when it says crib in the master's crib there, that's what it's talking about, the donkey feeding trough. And so every day this farmer would go out and fill up this trough full of food, but the donkey is too stupid to come to the crib to eat. So this donkey's in this field and the crib's down one end full of wonderful food, the donkey's down the other end trying to dig up carrots in the dust or whatever. This, can you imagine how stupid that donkey would have to be to not even walk up the other end of the field and eat from the feeding trough? That would be a very, very stupid donkey. That is a perfect picture of what our lives are like sometimes. God, our master, our father, comes and fills out the feeding trough with food. You know what? The, God's God's trough, God's feeding trough, is full of everything you could possibly want or need in life. It's full of love. It's full of joy. It's full of peace. It's full of purpose and meaning. God, every day, his mercies in you, every day, he comes out and he lays out all you could possibly want, all, all you could possibly need in a feeding trough. And what do we do? We ignore the trough and we try and we, we scramble about in the dust, looking for joy and purpose and meaning in, in other places. Let me tell you this morning, purpose, joy, love, all those things can be found in God. And yet, if you think about how you plan your days and how you plan your weeks, if I think about how I plan my days and how I plan my weeks, I, I think like this, now, you know what, today, I'm going to go for a run, because when I go for a run, I feel so great. I'm going I'm to watch that TV program or that film or complete that level on a computer game, because that's, that's my purpose for today. I'm going to eat this for lunch, because I'm really excited. I, I bought a, a fantastic chicken that I'm going to roast, and I'm going to have that for lunch. And then I'm going to spend time with that person, because time with that person really fulfills me. That's my day planned out. And sometimes we plan days like that, or we plan weeks like that. We fill in all these actually unimportant things and we don't plan in time to go to the feeding trough where there's carrots and parsnips and joy and love and purpose and meaning all laid out for us for our God in heaven none of those things that we're planning in our days are necessarily bad but if we don't spend time with God if we don't go back to God if we don't involve God in all of our day, if we don't plan God into our day and our weeks, we're like the stupid donkey who's digging for carrots in the dust when the farmer's already found him a whole load of great carrots and put them out for him to eat. If you're here this morning and you feel like your life lacks love or lacks joy or lacks purpose, this is what God would say to you from Isaiah 1 verse 3. You're at the wrong end of the field. The feeding trough is over here, you stupid donkey. Ah, um, I think God might use that kind of language in a loving way. <laughs> Come, eat, pray, read your Bible, enter into joyous relationship with me. And so let's be those people who plan going to the feeding trough 
into our days. In fact, let's make our whole day enjoying God in all that we do. So let me let me um, keep going, keep going. Um, so God spells out what He's saying in verse four. He's saying that Judah is a sinful nation. He's saying that Judah is a people laden with iniquity. Iniquity is just another word for sin. He's basically saying these people, Judah, are like, they've sinned so much, they've disobeyed God's commands so much, they're like a person kind of overwhelmed, carrying all these stupid and wicked deeds that they have committed. And then he calls Judah offspring of evildoers. I wonder whether that phrase would have hurt the people of Judah the most. Hang on, you said you're our father. We're the children of God. Now you're calling us offspring of evildoers? What God is saying is your deeds are so wicked that actually, even though I'm really your father, the way you're acting makes evil your father. Evil is your father. That's what God is saying to these Israelites, these Jews in this passage. Judah has forsaken the Lord. They've despised God, the Holy One of Israel. And as a consequence, they are utterly estranged. God is a stranger to the people of Judah. That's what sin does in our lives. Sin makes God a stranger. Sin forms a barrier between us and God and estranges us from the one who created all the world. If you're a Christian here this morning um, and God feels distant to you, it's actually highly likely that that's because of your, your sin. Your sin has estranged you from God. I would urge you to confess your sin and believe once more upon Jesus Christ. Enter into close relationship with your God and Father. When we as Christians sin, it, it, it makes it feel like God is distant. I don't know if you know that in your life. I know I go, sometimes go through days or weeks where actually I'm not giving over time to prayer. I'm not spending time in God's presence. I'm not obeying God. And when I go through those weeks, God feels distant. Now, now God is just a moment away. I can turn to him to any moment. It's not like God forsakes me when I'm sinning. But we do go through seasons where God feels distant. And often that is because our own sin is estranging us from our Father. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. It feels like God is, does not exist at all. And the reason life feels that way to non-Christians is because sin has estranged you from God. This is not an easy thing to preach. It's not a comfortable thing to preach, but it's true biblically. Sin estranges us from God. And so the reason why non-Christians think God doesn't exist is because their sin has formed this barrier between them and God. It says in, in Romans 1.18, men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And so if you're a non-Christian here this morning, what the Bible says about you is that your unrighteousness, your sin, the things you've done wrong, is suppressing the truth of God's existence, his love and his care for you. It's our unrighteousness, it's our sin, it's our deeds that drive a wedge between us and God. If God feels like a stranger to you, it's because of the things you've done wrong. And, and at this point, I need to remind you, hope is coming. There's forgiveness coming. I'm going to preach Jesus Christ. There is a solution to this problem, but not yet. Because in verses 5 and 6, God continues his 
witness. He continues his account of Judas' sinfulness. And he compares Judas' sinfulness with a sick person in verses 5 and 6. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in this body. I think the focus on the head and the heart at the start of verse 5 is, is deliberate. What you think and what you love is often where sin rears its ugly head most powerfully and severely. But what I want to focus on from this verse is that this man described in verse 5 has pretty much every single disease and illness you can possibly think of. There is no soundness in his body, God says, from the sole of the foot to the head. In other words, the entire body is riddled with disease and injury and every possible thing this person can have. He, he is, that Judah's illness is total and complete. The entire body is, is messed up. And the other thing I love, I'm not going to focus on this, but in verse 6, that Judah is, is so silly that it, it's, it's ill from head to foot and yet it's walking about without any bandages on or any, like, it hasn't bothered to treat itself. Judah's like this man who has every single disease and hasn't bothered to take any medicine or use any bandages or anything at all, um, which again makes Judah seem really, really stupid, I think. But, but yeah, I want to focus on this idea that the whole of Judah, from the sole of the foot to the top of the head, there is no soundness in the body whatsoever. There is a doctrine uh, made famous by the Calvinists um, called total depravity. It's a biblical doctrine. And what total depravity teaches is that human beings are completely, human beings without God are completely morally corrupt. Without God, mankind from the sole of the foot to the head is diseased and injured and completely morally corrupt, totally depraved. Now, um, many of you, kind of including me in a sense, think that sounds, might think that sounds very harsh. I've got some nice non-Christian friends. In fact, I know some non-Christians who, who live better than the Christians that I know in many, many ways. Um, but if you think that's harsh, here's how I think God would respond. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. So someone without God does not obey that command in any sense of the phrase. They don't even believe in God, most of them. They, don't, they certainly don't love him with their mind and heart and body and soul and strength. And that means even if they do a really good deed, it's not a deed that flows from love towards God, which is the greatest commandment and the greatest mark of what goodness truly is. So even the very best deed is actually morally corrupt because it's not done in love towards God. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, you cannot please God. So if you don't have faith in God, it's impossible to please him. It's impossible to do anything good. 
And so this is what the Bible teaches, that without God, human beings are completely morally corrupt. I know that to be true of myself. Without God, I am completely morally corrupt. My life is full of selfishness and pride. And if I was not a believer in God, I dread to think where I would be today. I dread to think where I'd be today because I know that without God, I'm completely morally corrupt. That's what Isaiah, that's what God is saying in Isaiah 1 where he says, in Judah, from the sole of the foot to the top of the head, there is no soundness in the body whatsoever. So this doctrine of total depravity means two things for us today. Firstly, it teaches us that mankind cannot save itself. A person cannot save themselves. A man who is full of disease cannot heal himself. One who is morally corrupt cannot by himself transform himself into a good person. But rather, mankind, human beings, need an outward, miraculous move of God to save a person. If someone is completely morally corrupt, they cannot save themselves, they need God to move miraculously to transform them in their hearts. If we want our non-Christian friends to be saved, we need to get on our knees and pray that the Holy Spirit would move in an amazing way to regenerate that person, to make them alive, to transform them from where they are into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So the first thing total depravity teaches us is that we cannot save ourselves, but we need God to move miraculously in a person's life. The second thing total depravity teaches us or does to us, is it makes us humble. Without God, I am completely morally corrupt. I am totally depraved. I cannot be proud that I am a Christian. Because the only reason I'm a Christian is because God did a miraculous work in me. It was God who deserves all the praise and glory that I was saved. I cannot go around and go, it's because of my great decision that I'm a Christian. It's because my brain is better than other people's. It's because I'm just a better person. I cannot possibly say those things because I was totally depraved. I was utterly corrupt until God miraculously saved me and moved me and changed me. So I cannot be proud I'm a Christian. And I cannot be proud of my good works. Amazingly, when God comes into a person and, and changes them by the Holy Spirit, a Christian starts living in good works and doing good things. But I cannot be proud of those good works. Because if I have done anything good in my life, that was a work that originated in God. God is the one who deserves all the glory and the praise. It's only because he moved in me that I could do anything good. So if there's anything good in my life, I can't be proud of that personally. Instead, I need to give all the praise and the glory and worship to God. Because by myself, I'm completely morally corrupt. But God has done great things in me that I might do good works. So to believe this doctrine of total depravity is to know that mankind cannot save itself but needs God to move and also to make us completely humble. Are you humble this morning? Do you know that all the good things that you've done in your life, you've only done those good things by the power of God in you? He deserves the glory and the praise. Take no pride in what you do yourself but rather be humble and give glory, uh, give glory to God. So, so in verses 5 to 6, God compares sin to being sick. I think it's a really helpful metaphor and quite a stinging metaphor as well. Then in verse 7, he starts to describe the judgment 
that will come upon Judah. Since Judah's sin is total, it would be just for God to completely destroy Judah. Um, And though the judgment described in verses 7 to 9 is severe, notice that God does show a little bit of mercy in verses 7 to 9. Judah will be burned, devoured, left desolate, like a hut in a cucumber field. One of my favourite images from the passage. If you imagine this whole great cucumber farm and this great field of growing cucumbers and all that's left is a tiny little shack, that's what God is saying is going to come upon Judah because of her sin. Though Judah will be burned, there will be a few survivors. And can you see how that's God's mercy acting? If if Judah is sick from the sole of the foot to the top of the head, it would be right and just of God to completely destroy all of Judah. But actually God says, I'm going to leave a few survivors in this place. So judgment accompanies sin. Judgment is coming upon this place, Judah. And then from verse 10 onwards... God stops speaking using imagery and metaphor and instead focuses on describing the actual sin of these people. It's not just you're totally sinful from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. It's not like you're like a stupid ox who can't obey its master's instructions. It's not just you're like a donkey who doesn't know where its master's crib is. Rather, God says, this is the real problem with you, Judah. This is the real sin that you have committed. Now, notice in verse 10, Um, God pays Judah the ultimate insult in verse 10. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. He he talks to them, he says, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah were two places that were so wicked in their deeds that God utterly destroyed them. So, So God is saying to the people of Israel, you are so despicable I can call you Sodom and Gomorrah. You're like those wicked, evil people who I completely eradicated. So God is, God's not pulling his punches in this chapter. He's, he's, he's going all in in declaring the sin of the people of Judah. What is it that these people have done that is so wicked? It's not that they've neglected religious ceremony. Have a look at verses 11 to 15. In verse 11, these people of Judah have offered sacrifices. In verse 12, they've been often to the temple courts. In verse 13, they've observed Sabbaths. In verse 14, they've observed the holy feast that God commanded in Scripture. In verse 15, they're even people who pray a lot. God says, you make many prayers. These people of Judah are very religious. That's not what's wrong with them. It's it's not that they've not observed the religious ceremony in the Old Testament. But the religious deeds that these people of Judah are doing are empty because outside of those religious deeds, their love and care for needy people is completely missing. Have a look at verse 17. God says, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. All those specific instructions in verse 17 are about looking after people who need help. 
I want you to look after orphans, the fatherless. Bring justice to the fatherless. I want you to look after widows. I want you to look after, I want you to plead the widow's cause. I want you to stop oppression. Those people who are being oppressed, you need to stop that. You need to seek justice for people who need justice. All of those instructions of verse 17 are about helping people who are needy. Every single one of them. So what God is saying is you're observing religious ceremony, but you're completely failing to care for needy people. If you observe religious ceremony here this morning, if you go to church every week, every Sunday, if you sing the worship songs that we sing, if you pray, if you read the Bible, if you even give financially to church, all those things are hollow and empty, even ugly in the eyes of God, unless they are also accompanied by love and care for needy people. All those things are hollow and empty, even ugly in the eyes of God, unless they are also accompanied by love and care for needy people. And the reason that's true is because when you observe religious ceremony in a genuine way, I, I, I love it when people come to church. That's a really good thing. I love it when people pray. I love it when people read the Bible. I love all those things. When you do them genuinely, you encounter God, our Father in heaven. And what you, when you encounter our Father in heaven, you recognise him as a God who loves and cares and shows kindness. And so if you're genuinely observing religious ceremony, you are encountering the loving, kind God of the Bible who then transforms you so that you also become loving and caring. This is what um, James 1.27 says. True religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And so I, I, I tell you this, if you are doing all of this, this stuff that we do on a Sunday morning, and yet out there you do not love and care for those people in need, then what's going on in here is completely empty and meaningless. And yet if you are meeting with God here, and in our life groups, and in all the other things we do during the week, if you're meeting with God, your heart will be transformed such, such that out there you love and care for people in a godly way. And actually in this room as well. Like it's not just that we care for those people outside the room. We care for one another as well. That's really, really important biblically. I'll tell you the truth. Over the next five months, by the time we get to September, so we'll be running a year, I want to articulate what it means to be part of Christ Church Fairham, who we are as a church, what it means for someone to say, yes, I'm with you. I know loads of you are already with us and part of this vision and thing that we're building, but I want to I articulate that better. And part of what I'm trying to articulate is how do we love and care for the needy people in here and the needy people out there? Because I want us to be amazing at it because our Father in heaven loves people, really, really loves and cares for people. And if we... Like, there's no point getting this right if we get that wrong. Because that's exactly what these pe people in Judah, they, they've got the religious ceremony right, and they've got the love and the care and the heart of Christianity completely wrong. A 
so, so God, this witness, stands up and declares, gives this witness account of the sin of Judah. He does not pull any punches. He, he's full of imagery and metaphor to describe how sinful these people are. He, he tells them that they need to correct oppression and bring justice and plead the widow's cause. And if you're anything like me, you're reading this and thinking, if I was the one on trial, I would be in big trouble. What would I say in my defence if God had brought this against me? Because I think quite a large part of me would be saying, I think you're right, God. I think you're right, God. The way you're describing me, yeah, that seems spot on. I haven't cared and loved people enough as much as I should do. Sometimes I do just go through the, the rituals of religiousness rather than actually genuinely loving and caring for people. I, I would be sitting, I would be trembling in the dock if God stood up and said this about me, and he could. And so verse 18 finally arrives and brings relief and comfort and forgiveness. Verse 18 is an astonishing verse, isn't it? God said all these things as witness, and then the same God who's just stood up and testified against Judah stands and says, Come, now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Those words are astonishing. The same witness who's just piled on the ministry uh, misery now also promises forgiveness. And this is the very heart of the Christian faith, isn't it? This is what Jesus accomplished for us upon the cross. All of us are sinful, guilty men and women. All of us are covered in a crimson stain because what God describes in Isaiah chapter 1 are the sins that we have committed, the things that we are guilty of. And that is like a crimson red stain upon us. And then Jesus comes. God the Son into the world and says, give me your sins, give me your crimson stain. I will take your red robes upon myself and I will give you a white garment of pure blamelessness in response. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He dies on the cross for our guilty stains that we might be clothed in white. That our lives should be made white as snow. When it snows next, I know it'll be a long time, but when it snows next, I want you to look upon that snow and remember Isaiah 1, you know, the Christmas and the perfection of white snow and go, that is what Jesus has given me. That whiteness, that blemishlessness, that blamelessness. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We're all flawed human beings in this room. And yet if we believe in Christ we have been made white like snow in the sight of God. And that is what Isaiah 1 is all about. Let me, let's stand and let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess our sins to you this morning. We confess that in many ways we have acted religiously and not loved and cared for people as we should. We confess that we have spent lots of time shuffling about in the dust looking for carrots when you have laid out a plethora of joy and love in your trough, Lord God. We have not spent time going to you, being in your presence, loving you, for that's where purpose and meaning and love and joy are all found. We kind of play about in the dust instead, Lord God. We are foolish, 
We are silly. Without you, Lord God, we are completely morally corrupt. And so, Lord, we are so grateful for your forgiveness. Thank you that you have made our red stains white. You have made our guilty stains innocent in the blood of Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for the forgiveness of Isaiah 1 verse 18. And we worship and glorify you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.